Let's just pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your written word and for the living word, Jesus. Please help us today to learn more from him and to follow him more closely. Matthew 17, 24 through to 18, verse 14. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma corn. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you be Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes some, one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two foot and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I'd like you to think of someone that represents the peak the best of the best, in terms of their chosen career, profession, sport, or skill. Let's use tennis as an example. My wife loves tennis. I don't know anything about it, though mum told me that dad used to love it. I just kind of blocked out all those childhood years, I guess, of tennis. So my wife had to explain tennis and who's involved and um, who the players are, and I don't think there would be any disagreement that Rafa Nadal would fit the description of being in the best of the best in tennis. As would Einstein for physics, 
and Mozart for musical composition. Now imagine if I go up to Raphael and I ask him, in all of tennis, who is the greatest? Mike or I? Such an absurd question is compounded by the fact that I didn't include Raphael in that list of the picks. I'm sure the Spaniard would call me estupido, which is the Spanish equivalent of a drongo. But you know this very situation happened. In verse 1 there of Matthew 18, the disciples are quarrelling amongst themselves about who is the greatest. The parallel account in Mark 9 provides more details on the argument that they were having. The disciples, keen to settle once and for all this question of greatness, approached Jesus asking, in all of heaven, who is the greatest? Peter? John? Maybe James? This is the same Jesus that just a couple of chapters earlier was declared by Peter to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's the same Jesus that... I lost my place. But Jesus didn't even make their list. Sorry. Is that a bit a stupider? Jesus' response addresses their flawed assumption that they were in the kingdom in the first place. In asking who is the greatest in heaven, the disciples assumed they would be there. But we know one who wasn't, Judas Iscariot. But what about the others? Did being in Jesus' inner circle guarantee salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God? To that, Jesus says no. Greatness is everywhere. The boasting of those who consider themselves great, the pressure to make ourselves great, it's all around us, and there's no shortage of advice, self-help books, 10-point checklists to guide our journey from zero to hero. We all have this desire inside of us to be somebody, to be doing something meaningful, to have our lives count for something, to make a difference in the lives of those around us, perhaps even to change the world. And in a sense, that's God-given desire, to use our talents and abilities for constructive purposes. These are all good things. But how pure are our desires and motivations? Does not our heart yearn that somebody notices that we're doing good? Does not the thought cross our minds that it's good to build up our name through the good that we do? This morning, we're going to see what this passage has to say about greatness. Jesus' disciples were acting childish, and so he uses children to give us an object lesson. And in taking inspiration from the vain and prideful queen in the children's story, Snow White, the title of this message is Jesus, Jesus on the wall. Who is the greatest of us all? We'll see this morning that the answer to that is those with childlike humility, those who guard against sin, and those who care for others. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with your word open. We ask that you speak to us today. We ask that you quieten our minds and still our hearts so that we can hear the message you have for us. Amen. Let's start at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is warning his disciples to not get distracted by who was the greatest, because they will never enter the kingdom unless they turn from their present conduct and change to become like little children, to be childlike. This would have sounded unusual because children were the lowest in society at the time. Children were treated as property rather than people. Children were bought and sold as slaves, at other times beaten and neglected, and even sacrificed to pagan gods. And you can see in verse 4, Jesus points out the lowly position of this child. Children had very different rights than they do today. These days, people celebrate their children, spashing them all over social media. My wife and I are guilty of that. But in the first century, children were ignored. They were to stay out of the way and to contribute to society as quickly as possible. The child is held up as an idea, not of childish qualities such as innocence or purity of faith, nor implying that they're sinless, but of humility at the bottom of the pecking order, subject to grown-up authority, dependent and powerless. Jesus is speaking of becoming children in the sense of the status of the child who possesses nothing but needs everything. Such humility and lowly position requires a childlike trust in their parents and a recognition of the dependency they have on the adults to care for them. Little children aren't concerned about social status, economic status, race, and so forth. They treat everyone their age as friends and equals. They don't worry about whether they're better than other children. They just want to have fun together. And this is observable if you ever watch a group of kids play at the park or a birthday party. Little children are completely content with non-status. As children grow up, they tend to lose that. And it's not long before children compete and try to show their dominance. And this continues into adulthood, where this attitude of ranking ourselves over others invades our life. And it's this attitude that led the disciples to ask, who would the greatest be? None of the disciples had the maturity to see that their obsession with their own greatness was inappropriate. They came to Jesus collectively. They had all been talking, arguing, and debating, but none of them had the maturity to ask, does this strike anyone as petty? So who is the greatest in heaven? All who humble themselves like a little child without ranking. All who assume the status of complete dependence, having nothing and needing everything. This is the gospel faith that we adopt, to trust what Jesus has done for us since we are totally incapable of entering the kingdom on our own. We are born sinful and spend a lifetime indulging. We have no claim on Jesus' kingdom, nor do we naturally seek it. The destiny of every human being, whether great or petty, is the same. Death, and then after that, judgment. Yet God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. To change is to accept this gospel, to trust in the grace of God alone. This requires humility and submission to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus on the wall, who was the greatest of us all? Those with childlike humility. And continuing in verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus once again refers to the little children, but expands the analogy here to those who believe in him, those that have changed to be childlike in attitude. Such a change gives us freedom to welcome people from all nations, statuses, and circumstances, even welcome children. We are all the same, sinners saved by grace, so we can look each other in the eye and generously welcome, listen, and understand one another. What divides us or sets us apart, as huge as these things sometimes might seem, well, they're insignificant in comparison with the blood of Jesus that was shed to make us one. When freed from the pursuit of greatness, we no longer need to be threatened by these differences or have a burning need to criticise, minimise or despise. We can enjoy the diversity we have together and work together in harmony. When we welcome in Jesus' name, when we serve humbly and sincerely and selflessly for Christ, we're welcoming Jesus and we're receiving Jesus. This also means that Jesus loves his little ones and wants them to be treated well. He loves them so much that he doesn't want them to be misled or despised. Jesus explicitly calls out actions that lead others to stumble, to sin. This might be an unkind word or a cold shoulder, or more seriously, it might be something that deflects a person from God's will or even salvation. Jesus, having established that humility, rather than pursuit of power and influence, are the mark of greatness, then the opposite of greatness is those who cause scandal and lead others astray. The person who does this will be better off having a millstone, a large circular rock, several hundred kilograms in weight, tied to the neck and cast into the sea. There's a picture of that in the outline. You may be the strongest swimmer, but even that wouldn't stop you from sinking straight to the bottom and drowning. And Jesus says that this fate, a quick death, is more merciful than the fate awaiting one who leads others to stumble. How might we cause others to stumble? Well, firstly, we need to be careful about what comes out of our mouth. Our words can both encourage someone, but our words equally can tear people down. Secondly, we need to faithfully teach and pass on biblical truth through careful study of God's word. There isn't any room for false teaching or strange ideas that could cause people to stumble away. Thirdly, the way we live teaches others what might be right or wrong. As believers of Jesus, we are being watched by others. And when we engage in sinful behaviours, 
others can assume that those behaviours are okay. We must ask, what kind of example are we setting for our children, for our little ones, for the believers in our lives? What are our lives teaching others around us? Are our lives teaching people to develop good priorities? Are we teaching people to chase after less important things? Are our lives teaching others to speak in ways that are honouring to God and others? Or are we teaching them to tear down with those who disagree with us or gossiping about others? Are our lives teaching others to look to God for guidance? Or are our decisions based on what the world says, what our friends say, or what we read online? Are our lives teaching others to develop self-control? Or are we modelling a life that is merely driven by how we feel in the moment? And we can see, actually, Jesus putting this into action. Chapter 17, 24 to 27, sorry about the temple tax. The temple tax was a requirement for all Jewish men for the upkeep of the temple. And you can read about it in Exodus chapter 30 when it was established. It was a known obligation for the Jews, but there were some exempt classes such as the poor. A temple tax collector asks Peter if Jesus will be paying the tax. Jesus could have responded by saying, hey, I'm the son of God. You know that temple that you want taxes paid to? Well, it's for worshipping me. In fact, in a few days, I'm going to render it completely meaningless. And in a few decades, the Romans are going to come in here and destroy it. But how Jesus responds teaches us much. Verse 27, but so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Jesus didn't want this situation to cause offence, to be a stumbling block for this tax collector. This guy was just doing his job. Can you imagine the drama it would cause for the individual, this collector having to report back to his superiors that Jesus won't pay because he's the son of God? Instead, Jesus uses the opportunity to perform a miracle. How we live can lead people either closer to Jesus or drive them further away. Back into chapter 18 and verse 7, Jesus is denouncing the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Jesus is saying that such things must come those who make tempting videos, songs, or things that cause others to sin, they're going to have to answer for what they do. Those who sell drugs, tempt others to get drunk or into sexual immorality, they'll be held responsible. He's saying these things must come. But Jesus is also saying we need to take personal responsibility for the things that cause us to stumble. And in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. We must take whatever measures are necessary to ensure that we don't go down a path of sin. And Jesus is using some extreme examples here about the measures we should take to root out sin from our lives. He's not advocating self-mutilation in response to sin, but he is showing how important it is to address sin in our lives. 
Sometimes we need to cut something out, something good, to get rid of something bad. There's something that leads us to sin, even if that thing, that thing itself isn't sinful, we may need to cut it out. And practically speaking, this may mean modifying the types of movies, TV shows, or music that we consume, because those things might be changing the way we think or act. Might mean choosing to stop reading, watching, or listening to a news source, because it's making us hard-hearted, angry, or intolerant of people who disagree with us. Might mean choosing to no longer hang out with a group of people who bring out the worst in us, and instead finding friends who will encourage us in the way to live the God intended. And it might mean setting boundaries for ourselves that will keep us from getting into a situation where we succumb to sin. Jesus reminds us what's at stake here. Sin isn't something that we should tolerate in our lives. Sin has a way of spreading if we don't contain it. Jesus says we need to make sure we are protecting ourselves from sin and that we aren't leading others into sin. The stakes are far too high to do nothing. Jesus, Jesus on the wall, who is the greatest of us all? Those who guard against sin. And then in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you they're angels in heaven Always see the face of my Father in heaven. When Jesus says see, he means make sure you do not despise or look down on these little ones. Again, referring to believers. Even the least impressive disciple of Jesus here today has an advocate before God's throne. No believer should be despised, but rather held in the highest esteem because their dignity in God's eyes is great. God is working through his angels. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And these angels are always in the presence of God. We cannot see the face of God because of our sin, but these angels can. I don't think it means that we all have our own personal guardian angel but rather there's many angels ministering to us that are also ministering to other people. All this talk about not causing little ones to stumble, about not despising little ones, all stem from the question the disciples asked about who would be the greatest in heaven. The disciples were thinking primarily about themselves, but Jesus was trying to broaden their view for the concern for others instead of themselves. And verses 12 to 14 show the extent of God's love and concern for his little ones. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not, is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus uses the analogy of a shepherd searching for a lost sheep. Shepherds took the responsibility of caring for sheep very seriously. They loved their sheep and would do whatever they could to protect them. Sheep will wander, just like children. If you take your eyes off your child, even for one second, you might find them all the way over on the other side of the room. Don't we all have a tendency to wander away? 
we must be careful that our actions don't cause someone else to stumble. But equally, we have to be aware that someone else's sin can cause us to stumble, that we can get lost by that sin, and we might gradually wander away. The shepherd goes out to find the lost sheep, even one out of a hundred, because the sheep is precious to the shepherd. And when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he is not angry. My wife and I had seven goats a year ago, and one would always get out. And I would go find it, but I was very angry at this goat. But this shepherd is not angry about finding this lost sheep. He is happier about the one sheep than about the 99. And there is much rejoicing when that lost sheep is found. And this is how Jesus pictures the Father caring for us. And it's an example he gives of how we should all be caring for each other. Instead of selfishly looking out only for our own interests or our own comfort, we should look out for each other. We should do whatever is necessary to keep ourselves from falling into sin and to help one another stay pure, to grow in faith. When we or someone else is wandering from the things of God, we should seek to bring each other back with the same intensity as a father protecting his child as the shepherd does with his sheep. Jesus, Jesus on the wall, who was the greatest of us all? Those who care for others. I imagine the disciples were confused by Jesus' response. They were looking for a slam-dunk answer because they wanted to know what their rank was. Jesus responds to the fact that they were asking the wrong question with the wrong motives. Jesus used children and little ones to show the disciples that their hearts were in the wrong place, that they were only focused on themselves, while Jesus' concern is for others. We see here that God is not willing that any of these little ones will perish. And if God's not willing that any perish, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that none of his little ones will perish. He will not lose them. If they are lost, he will find them, and he protects them. This is great encouragement for us. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to save you. Jesus, the Son of God, came to seek and to save the lost. He is the example of childlikeness. He is the one who humbled himself, emptied himself of the glory he had in heaven. He came down to the sin-stained world because it was the will of the Father. He trusted and depended on God perfectly. And he loved us so much that he gave his own life for us. That is selfless love. So we need to look around us and to see how our actions are either helping or hurting the rest of the body of Christ. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for bickering. Rather, loving one another, welcoming one another, and looking out for any little ones that are lost. Serving each other humbly, selflessly, in the name of Jesus Christ. The disciples' question was selfish, but Jesus' answer was just what they needed to hear. Take the lowly position of a child here on earth, and you will be among the greats in the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, help us to understand what true greatness is. Thank you for giving us your son who willingly took on insults, rejection, torture and death so that we could have life. Thank you for the hope we have because of the death and resurrection of your son, a hope that guides us in uncertain times and good times. We pray that our requests of you will be pure and not selfish. And we ask for your continual teaching as we grow in understanding of your love and purposes. In your name we pray. Amen.